Hey everyone, welcome back to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. I'm Jenna. And I'm Mark. Thanks to all you listeners for joining us for another episode. Jenna, we got a really fun show lined up today. I'm ready to learn a lot. We're being joined by Dr. Jess Hines, who's an associate veterinarian here at the Cincinnati Zoo. I'm really excited because we're going to talk about a couple specific experiences that you've had here and some really exciting work that you've done. But first off, just thanks for joining us today. We know you're really busy, so we appreciate you taking the time out to join us. Hi, thanks guys. Uh, I'm Dr. Jess, and I'm here at the Cincinnati Zoo, and I'm excited to talk to you guys. So I think it's interesting because we you are our first veterinarian that we've had talk to us. You guys are so busy, but I've heard, I, I'm just getting to know you. We haven't had a ton of opportunities to work together yet, but I've heard that you are really interesting sorry, interested in educating and like you're willing to talk to people and tell us all about things and like explain cases and such. So I'm excited to have you and I appreciate your willingness to kind of teach us and and especially just in the moment, like, you know, when animals are sick or crazy things are happening. So I've heard great things about you. Yeah, I really uh, love teaching in the realm of veterinary medicine, but Not only do I think it's, I find it interesting and feel like everyone else finds it interesting, but it also helps our clinical cases. So I feel like our animal care staff are kind of like our quote unquote clients. You know, they are the ones who see our animals every day. They're going to be the first ones who pick up on when an animal's not feeling well or if a medication isn't working just right. And I feel like the more they know about the disease process, the more they can pick up on those subtleties quickly. And if you engage by explaining what's happening with the disease, you guys can have more ownership of it and help us fix it better. That's Mm -hmm. such a good point. And yes, it it takes like, you guys don't have the time to know every single animal and be able to watch them after you do make a diagnosis or give us a certain medication. So it is up to us. So the more we know, the better we can help you out and the animals, of course, and the the end of it all. Um, So what got you started? Like what... Did you grow up wanting to be a vet? Did you grow up loving animals like we always say? (laughs) Yeah, so I have the same tagline as everyone else. I grew up loving animals. Uh, Interestingly, I actually never wanted to be a veterinarian. I actually thought that was a terrible idea because I didn't understand what they did. I thought veterinarians just saw sick puppies and dogs with broken legs and everything was really sad when it went to the vet. And the vet was this scary place where like you got poked with needles and everything. And so I never wanted to be that person to the animal where they, the animal sees you when they get scared. Um, I'm not saying that's not true. I was going to say, that was always my <laughs> that word, is, too. That does happen, but on the same side, you make the animals better, and that's a really wonderful feeling. Um, especially in zoo medicine, we do a lot where there's training opportunities for medical care, and that is a wonderful opportunity to have positive experiences with the animals. However, usually the vet only comes around when an animal's not feeling well, and I've had many cases in which animals just don't like me, and knowing that I'm helping them, even if they don't understand, is a good enough feeling for me to kind of get over that experience. What changed your mind then? So you didn't want to, (laughs) and you thought it was like this negative stuff, which there are parts, but... So what flipped that for you? Yeah, so I went through um, my high school and undergraduate and was really trying to decide what I wanted to do with animals. I thought I wanted to be the next Jane Goodall, who was a brilliant researcher who really helped revolutionize the study of chimpanzees. And I wanted to go out into the wild and discover something and really make a global impact on non-domestic species. Um, And I was having a really hard time doing that. I was looking into PhD programs. I was a zookeeper for a little bit. And as 
working as a zookeeper, I saw the vet and the vet got to come in and they got to help every animal in the zoo. And I started to learn they're doing research, they're learning all of these things about endangered species and they're sharing that information. And I realized the zoo vet is the one that is kind of the jack of all trades and they have the opportunity to do anything. They can go to Africa and help with a veterinary case there and, and change the health of the animals or they can partner with a university and, and do research. And so I really saw that as a, an open door. And when I started in vet school, instantly fell in love with medicine. Just the, the challenge of it, the kind of putting all the puzzle pieces together and Sherlock Holmes figuring it out. Um, oftentimes we describe it's much like being a pediatrician because you have your cases come in, you have a parent who is your animal care or your owner who they're upset because their animal is crying or pooping or puking or something and they can't tell you what's wrong and you have to figure out what's going on and everyone's scared and upset and you're gonna just trying to make it all better. Um, so so much like that, we, we kind of think of our fur babies the same way. They can't really yeah. tell you what hurts or yeah. why. Exactly. Yes. And so you have to do a little more investigating, but it also means a, a really close relationship with your animal care or your the the people taking care of the animals because then you have to ask the right questions. You have to look at things the right way. So you mentioned you feel like you're kind of a jack of all trades. And that's mm -hmm. true as far as like not only where you work, as far as you might work in a university, help out with animals in the wild. And obviously most of your work is done here at the zoo. But I feel like it's also true in terms of the animals you work with, right? Um, yeah. You see in private practice, most of those vets just work with cats, dogs, kind of not to call them basic, but just kind of the animals you would see around your house. Here, you're working with reptiles, you're working with insects, mm -hmm. large mammals, small mammals, everything in between. How do you kind of balance all that knowledge? That's what I've always been curious about because there's so much to know and so much to learn. You can't know everything, so how do you kind of balance it? Yeah, the first step is exactly what you said. You can't know everything. And so a lot of it is taking the time to, one, realize if you don't know, know how to find that information. And if you can't find that information, then you have to figure out how to extrapolate or decide, well, I know a similar species or a similar disease in something else. How do I transform that into this species? So, you know, you have kind of slightly easy transformations of a tiger is just a really big cat. A Mexican wolf is just a dog that really wants to bite you. Um, but then you have things like I've, I've treated jellyfish and you're like, how do you, okay, what, yes, is how like do you? what do you, how <laughs> what do you treat like a jellyfish? jellyfish? And a lot of this comes from, um, looking at, uh, research or, or looking at other animals. You know, you look at its natural history and, and you work with the people who are working with that animal. A lot of times when I'm working with a species I don't know much about, I take a little bit of time to read up. There's There are textbooks, there are journals, there are publications that have information about veterinary medicine in non-domestic species. And so the first place I look is that is there. And then I'll also look at my colleagues. You know, I, I will reach out to veterinarians I've worked with in the past or veterinarians that work at institutions that have more of that species. And we have a network called the Association of Zoo Veterinarians that we collaborate between. And that's one of the things that I've absolutely loved about veterinary medicine from the day that I stepped in is everybody is on the same page everyone's on the same team so you hear sometimes in like human medical school that it's very cutthroat and you want to get in you want to do that and 
I found veterinary medicine is the complete opposite. Everyone came into this profession wanting to help animals and we will do it by any means necessary. Mm. And often that means reaching out to somebody else and asking a question. So we spend a lot of our own time publishing this information. You know, it takes a lot of time to write things down in a journal and get them, um, you know, reviewed by, by a larger group and then published into a, a written article. And that way, those, that's what I'm reading. I'm, I'm reading those articles to see how do I get this information to help our collection. And then I reach out. Um, and I can tell you about some reaching out some of those stories. Uh, I know when we talk a little bit later, um, but but it's really it's a it's a giant collaborative effort, and that's really wonderful. So um, it's it's taking a lot of time to think and look and realize that I don't know everything and continue to educate. Mm. You guys are so busy. Not only are you working all day helping <laughs> the animals here, but then you have to go and do all of that extra, yeah. and then also publish things, and it's incredible. But um, if you don't mind, could we back up a little bit and kind of just tell the listeners the route you took to get here and like how long it took and you were a zookeeper, was that during undergrad or war? Like how did you fit all of that in? <laughs> and um, just, yeah, a little bit about like the actual schooling you did and how you got to where you are. Yeah. So how did I fit all that in? I am much older than I look. No way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a very long road for um, getting the education to be a zoo veterinarian. Even just becoming a veterinarian takes a takes a long time. So here in America, we kind of have a set route where you complete an undergraduate degree. And after your undergraduate degree, much like medical school, you go to veterinary school. And there are only around there's under 30 vet schools in the United States, I believe. I'm not totally up on the numbers. So it's pretty competitive. It's, yeah. it's kind of hard to get mm -hmm. into those. So you, a lot of people work very hard and they might get waitlisted one year and then get in the next year. Um, but that means that the pool of people you're pulling from are very passionate and they're working very hard. So that's, I, I was educated with a, a cohort of people that are brilliant and still my friends to this day. Um, so it's about four years of veterinary school, and after you graduate from vet school, you are ready to be a vet. You took your test, you have your license, you're good to go, and some veterinarians take that step and they go into general practice, which these are your cat and dog vets who are doing your vaccines, they're doing your spay-neuter, they're seeing your animals for their general health exams. Um, or you can specialize, and specializing, much like in human medicine, you can be a cardiologist, a surgeon, a neurosurgeon, those require extra schooling. And so that's your internship and residency, same as what you hear for human medical school. For zoo medicine, we consider zoo a quote-unquote specialty. And the way that we define that specialty is that you know, general practice is cats and dogs, equine practice is horses, farm animal practice is your cows and your chickens and your pigs, zoo animal practice is every other unspecified <laughs> species. <laughs> so it's, it's literally <laughs> everything else. And that, and, and like Mark said, that is insects, that is frogs, that is elephants, that is dolphins, that is absolutely anything and everything. Um, so in order to learn or, or kind of educate yourself in that way, you can be a zoo veterinarian and get that information through experience. It's just a little bit slower. So you're going to work at some smaller institutions. You might work at a museum. You might work at a place that has a slightly smaller collection. But if you want to be a zoo veterinarian at the larger facilities, you know, your San Diego, your National Zoo, your Brookfields, those uh, veterinarians are educated and have a specialty degree. So they've done internship and residency. And those internships 
I did three. So I did an internship in small animal emergency medicine. So I learned my small animal medicine really well before I even stepped foot in zoo medicine. Okay. You have to be good at your cats and dogs and your horses and your cows before you can learn on your zebras and your bantang and your tigers. Um, because and you just did that at a general practice facility? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep, I did that. Uh, just a, an emergency facility and tertiary referral institution in Connecticut. Um, and then I did two internships in zoo medicine. So one was at a smaller zoo in Washington State. The other was here in uh, Ohio. And then after I had completed those internships, you, depending on the training you get, you might go into residency after one internship, after three internships. I took three. Um, and then residency is a pre-kind of organized three-year program. And that is either at a university or at a larger zoo that has the education capabilities to kind of educate you on that higher level. Mm. Um, so I did my residency with uh, uh, the Ohio State University, Columbus Zoo, and the Wilds. And that is a collaboration between both a veterinary university and a large uh, zoo institution that's committed to teaching. So they have enough veterinarians and enough caseload there that they can teach you in some of these kind of higher level learning uh, abilities. And then once you're done with that, uh, you take another really, really, really big test. Um, and I actually haven't taken that test yet. I'm okay. still studying for it. Okay. So they recommend that you take about 18 months to study for it. Wow. Some people start that studying during their residency. Some people do it afterwards. I'm doing it afterwards. And it's a two-day test that uh, takes a lot of effort. Um, so that's that's kind of the big next step for me. And so if I pass that test, I will be I will have extra letters behind my name that prove that I am specialty trained in zoo medicine. However, as you can see, I'm here practicing as a zoo vet. You don't have to have that specialty that's what license. I was going to ask. So it's just like it's just a another personal thing. preference. Yeah, it's just like you may have you know a, a family doctor who is really good at um, knowing about kidney health. Now, they may have studied all on their own, and they may know a lot of information that they have um, gathered through their own education, but if they have a specialty license in kidney medicine, then that's just a, a kind of a sticker that says, we know exactly where you've been trained, we know how much you know, and we can trust you in your, in your, um, in your you know, recommendations. Whereas for me, I have to prove it a little bit more with my background. So I prove it based on the medicine that I work and based on my resume and show people, these are all the places I've worked, these are the people I've worked with, they can vouch for me. But once I get that license, then that license speaks for all of that instead. Wow. As if all the schooling just to get the veterinary <laughs> degree and certificate. Like, I yeah. thought the doctor in front of your name was, that's proven enough, That gets halfway right? there, like, for sure. The doctor proves that I know cats and dogs and horses and cats. <laughs> Everything wow. else proves that I know the other stuff. So you're basically doing more schooling than a lot of human doctors, and it makes sense that you have to know a million different species. Yeah. And, of course, human doctors can specialize, and they can go to yeah. tons of school also, but... I think that's incredible. And a two-day test sounds like my worst nightmare. <laughs> is it all written or do you have to do like... So it like, is all written. Okay. There's a, what we call the practical part has more to do with kind of open-ended essay questions or slide review where you look at a, a slide of an animal or a disease process or a, um, like a cytology and you say, what is this? Okay. Mm. Um, that makes sense. Another thing that Mark had mentioned was um, in terms of the jack of all trades, not only do we know every species, but we're doing everything. So mm -hmm. here at the uh, at the zoo, 
our veterinarians can do a lot of different procedures. So we're doing preventative care, you know, we're doing, we're looking and making sure animals are healthy, we're getting blood work, we're doing dentals to clean their teeth. Um, but we're also, if an animal needs surgery, we'll perform surgery. We will take those x-rays, we can take those samples. And, you know, I, I removed a cancerous mass on a um, animal earlier and sent that information off for, for cytology to, to look at how, how bad is that cancer and didn't cure it with the surgical removal. And then if we have something that is beyond our capability, you know, we had a cardiologist come in and do a heart exam on one of our animals because I know a lot about the heart, but I can't, I don't have that specialty knowledge. So then mm -hmm. we'll pull in specialists from other areas and they may know everything about the heart, but I know about this species. And that's where we combine our knowledge and they give me what they would say if it was a cat or a dog. And then I translate that to a penguin or to a snake or to a, you know, a zebra or whatever it might be. That makes a lot of sense. So what would be your favorite part? Do you like the diagnosing? Do you like the working with all the different species the best just like the variety do you like surgery what would be your favorite part yeah um all of it um my least favorite part is writing records okay. <laughs> i'm with you on that <laughs> so i probably spend for you know for every hour that i spend touching an animal or looking at an animal i probably spend two hours writing records and and looking up information and and um you know, reading books and reading articles about that disease process or that species. So I spend a lot more time learning and writing than I do with the animals. But um, one of my favorite parts is whenever I'm working with a species that the animal care staff is particularly passionate about, either that individual or that type of animal, I always learn something and um, get really excited when I can find something new or, uh, or, and of course, always the most rewarding is when you have a sick animal and then you clear them from your from your case history. You're mm -hmm. like, I fixed it. I don't need to recheck you. We're good to go. So those are always uh, the most satisfying. That's always the best message to get is when the vets say, case is clear. You're done. Right. <laughs> like, no no more, rechecks yeah, needed. No rechecks. No more <laughs> no medication. More yeah. No more medicating. <laughs> Definitely. So recently, some people may have already heard this story, but we had an aardvark with a tooth issue and... You guys did something that I don't know if it's been done before, but we haven't done it here at the Cincinnati Zoo. So will you tell us about Allie the aardvark and her case and just, I think it's really unique and how we had some collaboration with another zoo. Um, if you just share a little bit like just from the beginning. Um. Yeah. So yeah, Allie the aardvark, um, she was definitely a, a special case and I've grown very close to her because I've worked with her a lot now. <laughs> um, so she's an 18 year old aardvark who presented with uh, dental disease or, or tooth problem. And she actually had a long history of having tooth problems. And this is not uncommon in aardvarks. And it's one of the things that we see in our older animals of any species is many of these animals, if they were in the wild, they wouldn't live as long as they do in human care. So we have, you know, they have free health care here. They have, you know, every meal that they need provided for them. They have perfect nutrition. And no this, predators, you know? no predators, <laughs> nothing to stress about. Uh, and so they tend to live longer than we would see in the, in, out in the wild. And that also means that, you know, those animals evolved with a certain lifespan and often their, their body kind of wears out after a while. Uh, aardvarks have continuously growing teeth, much like horses. And that means that there's a point at which their teeth just stop growing and they, they develop, uh, kind of accumulate some problems over their lifetime. So she had accumulated several problems over her older lifetime. 
and we had been working on her dental disease. And on a recheck for one of her uh, dental issues, we had noticed that one of her other teeth had now become a problem. And so as we were working on that tooth, we were able to remove it, but it had had such a large infection around it that it actually started to bleed and it had kind of invaded into an area that had a lot of blood vessels. So when we were able to finally clear up that infection, there was a lot of bleeding that was involved in that particular tooth removal. And one of the other challenges is, if you have never seen an aardvark, you should certainly look up a picture. They have very long noses, and a lot of what they do is they eat termites and ants and they kind of sniff really hard and they kind of suck up some of their food. So that means they have a lot of pressure in their mouth and in their nose. And imagine you've just gone to the dentist and they've just removed a tooth and they tell you, don't drink anything through a straw, don't suck on anything, you know, don't do anything that might dislodge that blood clot. Well, we can't tell Allie to do yeah. that, unfortunately. And so she went along her merry way and was sniffing and snorting everything and she just kept dislodging that Ugh. blood clot. And so, you know, the animal care staff would call us and say, hey, Allie's had another nosebleed, but it just stopped. Um, the other problem was that that tooth had gotten so much infection around it that it actually burst into her nasal cavity. Oh, oh no. So she now had a connection between her mouth and her nose. So when she, when that, um, when that tooth area would start to bleed, she'd actually bleed out of her nose as well. And because she sniffed so hard, you just kind of created this wind tunnel through it. Um, so we knew we had to fix that tooth problem and we actually, uh, enlisted the help of a veterinary dentist. So there's many dental things that we can do, but when it gets a little more complicated, we call in the experts. And luckily we have one of the best veterinary dentists just a few hours away in Columbus. And I've worked with her before on many zoo cases and she is wonderful. And so we took Allie up to Dr. Burning and, um, her, facility up in Columbus because they have some very specialized imaging. They have a CT scan that can go around her whole head and they can get a 3D image of what's going on in her mouth. And that's really important for um, especially looking at teeth because x-rays just don't quite get the angles and everything that you want to look at. How far can an aardvark even open their mouth? Or say they are yeah. anesthetized, can yeah. you even open their mouth far you enough to look in there? I cannot get, uh, so you can probably open their mouths mm, maybe like three inches, wow, okay. but their whole mouth is about a foot long. So the imaging so, is incredibly important. Yeah, it's like looking down a tunnel. And actually wow. one of the ways that we evaluated her mouth was um, if you've heard of an endoscopy or an endoscope where you take a camera that's on a long, long, long pipe essentially. And a lot of times we use that to look into the stomach or to look down the lungs. In this case, we were just using it to get down farther in her mouth. So we were using that endoscopy to try to look at all these different areas. Um, and so we were combining that with the CT scan and we were able to essentially look and, and determine that she had some tooth issues that we needed to fix. And so when we had her at Dr. Burning, she was in, as you mentioned, it's impossible to open their mouths as wide as you would a cat or a dog. So in order to get access to the teeth that were all the way in the back of her mouth, we actually had to make an incision in her cheek and go in at it from the side. So now you're combining surgery with the dentistry. <gasps> Yeah. <laughs> and Dr. Burning did an amazing job of, we worked on one side of the mouth, we got everything done in there that we needed to. Unfortunately, it just took a really long time. And so we decided, you know what, instead of keeping Allie under anesthesia any longer, we're gonna end this now, we're gonna wake her up, we're gonna make sure she heals from this first dental 
um, dental procedure. And then we're going to do the next one a couple weeks later. So after we had woken Allie up, we had taken some blood work on her and she was just kind of really slow. And we realized when we submitted that blood work and, and took a look at it, that her red blood cell level was very, very, very low. So essentially all that bleeding that she had done with her nosebleed, um, cause we didn't have a whole lot of bleeding during her dental procedure. It was actually very well controlled. Um, we realized that no, those nosebleeds that she had had earlier had really lowered her red blood cell level to the point that she was very anemic. And when an animal's anemic, when they don't have those red blood cells, essentially blood is what carries oxygen to all your organs. So you're not getting oxi enough oxygen to your kidneys, to your liver, to your brain, to your heart, and everything just kind of slows down. And it is a very high risk of death. And so we realized that her red blood cell level was so low that she was at risk of death if we didn't do something about it. Now, the challenge is you hear about blood transfusions and you, you know, many of us know that if you have a person who needs a blood transfusion, they need a very specific kind of blood um, because we all have blood types. So, you know, are you a universal donor? Are you a universal recipient? Do you have the right type? Um, we don't know that about aardvarks. We, there just hasn't been... Uh, studies in it and there hasn't been a need for it because a lot of times when you have these species that are not often kept in human care um, you're not taking blood and doing these invasive procedures just for the fun of right. it right um, mm. so you gather a lot of this information during a disease process and so it means you have very limited knowledge so this is where we have to extrapolate from other species you know we know some species have blood types some don't and one thing that we've learned from dogs is that dogs do have a blood type. However, they don't create as strong of an antibody response until they get introduced to foreign blood twice. So what we say is, quote unquote, the first blood transfusion is free, which means that the, the reason you don't want to give the wrong type of blood is because when an animal who has one blood type sees blood from another kind, it just attacks it. It assumes that it's an invader, it assumes that it's something that shouldn't be there, so it just destroys it. And so one, now you have destroyed all that blood that you've just put in, and two, the kind of the debris from that blood can be toxic to some of the organs. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons you have to be a little bit careful. Um, and when you, in dogs, if you do a transfusion and you do the wrong blood type, they're kind of, they don't know what's, ha their body doesn't know what's happening yet. So, so the first one's free, you can get away with it, uh, and you just have to make sure if you do a second blood transfusion, that body is now prepared for something foreign. So you have to make sure it's the correct type. So we were hoping the same thing was true with Allie, that quote unquote, the first one would be free. Now we didn't just rely on this entirely. Um, and we wanted to make sure if she had a negative reaction, we gave her medications to prepare for that. But the first step is where do we get blood? We only at here at Cincinnati, we only have one aardvark right now. Um, and so how do you get something that is appropriate to put into an aardvark? Can you use dog blood? Can you use blood from a cat? Can you use blood from a horse? You know, what is the other species they are similar to? And the answer is nothing. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. so if you, one of the things that we will do, and we literally will pu pull up a textbook on taxonomy and look at all of those branches that you see between different species and say, what branch most closely aligns with this species. When you're looking at a ferret, is a ferret more like a dog? Is a ferret more like a cat? Well, it's a little bit more like a cat, but it's not a lot like a cat. So we did the same thing with aardvarks. And what we came up with is they really are not near anything. So then the next step was, is there anything that is synthetic that we might be oh. able to use that 
is used in a variety of species that would not be, would be the least dangerous option. Um, there are some options, but we just didn't have them available. And we realized with Allie's blood levels being so low, we didn't have two or three days to figure this out. We needed a solution mm. within the next 24 to 48 hours. I was just going to ask, like, when did all of this research happen? It was within, like, Oh, hours. all of this happened within... 45 minutes. Okay. <laughs> um, as soon as we got those blood work results, I legitimately sat down with our other two veterinarians and I said, this is an issue that we need to address right now and we need to cancel our other procedures that are not emergencies until we figure this out. Mm -hmm. um, and we did. And we sat down and each of us had our own tasks. Um, and, you know, one of us reached out to other zoos. One of us sat down with the textbooks and said, what are the synthetic options that we have? One of us sat down and said, okay, how much can we learn? How much do we know about aardvark blood? And, and can we find any other resources? And so after that, you know, half hour, 45 minutes, we kind of came back and, um, and started kind of a communication tree and knowing that, you know, it's, this isn't something you do sequentially, you do it all at the same time. So that way we're getting information out about, can we get aardvark blood from somebody else? You know, is there a zoo? So we reached out actually to our registrar and to our animal keepers and said, do you know what zoos within, you know, a hundred miles have aardvarks here? And if they have an aardvark there, can we have the name of their curator and their veterinarians and we'll give them a call. And we just started calling institutions and saying, hey, do you have an aardvark? Would you be willing to get blood for us? Um, and so we reached out to a lot of the zoos in the area and the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium reached right back out. In fact, they were, that's where I did my residency. So I knew them fairly well. And they reached right back out and said, hey, we actually have a couple aardvarks. We'd be more than willing to get blood for you. And we could do that right now. Wow. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Like, amazing. Like right, right now. Anesthesia um, is kind of scary. Like for yeah. me, if, I mean, I would want to help the other yeah. zoo's animal, but I'd be like, okay, but this is scary for, to put our animal under anesthesia. I mean, exactly. it's worth and so it, it's, but... And the other thing to that I, I want to make sure everyone knows, too, is it's not that the other zoos weren't willing. You know, sometimes you just don't have the right candidate. You know, if we have another, if you have an aardvark at your institution, but that aardvark is sick in some way, right. you know, they're not the best one to take blood from. Maybe mm -hmm. there's somebody who can't spare that blood. So it's not to say that, you know, other zoos weren't willing. It's just... Columbus Zoo happened to be in a place where they had a young, healthy individual. And like you said, they're not, we can't collect blood on that animal uh, voluntarily. You know, some of these training sessions that we do, you can get one or two mils of blood for a, for a blood test. Um, but we needed half a liter to a liter of blood. And that's something that's going to take 30 minutes to collect. So mm -hmm. having an animal sit still that long is just not an option when we have these zoo species. So that means anesthesia. So do you, you know, they had to be able to have an animal that was healthy enough that they could put under anesthesia for an elective procedure, healthy enough to donate blood. Um, and they had to have the time for it. Cause you know, say, they're yeah, another zoo they, that been they have plenty of other things yeah. that they're doing. And so luckily the Columbus zoo has a really wonderful <laughs> veterinary staff and one of their vet teams was available. They went and co they collected that blood immediately. Wow. Um, and we actually had somebody from our staff, uh, drive up to Columbus, get that blood and drive it right back to us. So we had that blood within a matter of hours, which was amazing. Um, so then our team had to get together and do a blood transfusion on Allie. We did it very similar to our training in any other species that we do blood transfusions in. You have to be very careful of using the right setup so that you, you know, you don't get clots and you don't get um, some of these other issues. You know, we can, 
we decided, are we going to look and see if this blood cross matches with Allie? And what we realized was Allie is in such dire straits that either we give her this blood and maybe it works or we don't give her and there's a very high chance she dies. Yeah. Mm. So we elected to just go ahead and give her the blood transfusion and deal with the consequences. So we did give her medications that would counteract a transfusion reaction. Um, and we monitored her incredibly closely during that transfusion to see if she had any of the signs of rejecting the transfusion. Um, luckily she didn't, which was absolutely amazing. Yeah. While we had her under anesthesia, we also rechecked that dental incision. We rechecked, you know, the dental disease that she already had. She had a couple other issues that we were keeping track of. Um, and then the question was, okay, how much did this transfusion make us better? And how long will it last? Um, because once they survive the transfusion, then you have to say, how long will that blood survive in their body? You know, did does your body have a negative reaction and just kill all the red blood cells? And then you're right back to square one. Um, so we knew we were going to have to recheck her several times. We kept her here at the hospital, but it was like night and day. When we woke her up, we rechecked her red blood cell levels. She was at a critically low level, and we actually were able to bring her all the way back up to just barely below normal. Wow. So we were able to give her enough blood that we really turned a 180 on her and made her almost normal again, which is absolutely staggering. Um, and when she woke up, there was a complete difference in her attitude. She was awake. <clears throat> she was moving around. She was eating again. She's like, my tooth feels better. <laughs> I feel better. I can run around again. I'm not short of breath. I'm not tired all the time. Um, so it was very encouraging to see the, the change in her just in that attitude. Um, and then we knew we still had a really long road ahead. She still had dental disease that she was dealing with. We had to make sure this transfusion was working. But over the next several weeks, we continued to test her blood and her red blood cell levels stayed where they needed to be and then kept climbing, oh, good. which is exactly what we wanted to see. Um, and we're still working on her today. She's still, I just saw her yesterday for a recheck. Um, and uh, we're slowly going in the right direction. You know, she still has a couple issues she's working out, but the blood has not been an issue since. That's incredible. Yeah. I have a few questions. Yeah, so, of course. Um, when yeah, she, no, 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 <laughs> it's just so info, interesting. Yeah. So she went to Columbus for this mm -hmm. dental procedure. Yes. She woke up and you realized she was anemic. Were you mm -hmm. still in Columbus? Were you back in Cincinnati? Yeah. So we, we had, were back in Cincinnati at that point. Um, we knew that, uh, where we were in Columbus was just at the dental hospital. So they did not have the facilities to be able to hold her and take care of her. So we knew we had to get her back to Cincinnati regardless. So she was back at Cincinnati. She was recovering. She was awake while we were doing all of this to get her blood. Because even if we were doing all of this, it takes a lot of time for those other pieces to fall into place. And so um, we wanted to make sure she was awake and she was just resting comfortably, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't realistic to keep her under anesthesia for that long, correct. right? Okay. Correct. Because we had to, you have to think about the timing of we made all those phone calls, we got all that information. Mm -hmm. we, we had figured out where we were getting blood from in a matter of hours. But again, I don't want to have a, an animal who is ill under anesthesia for hours just mm -hmm. waiting. Right. Because there's nothing we're going to do. You know, the she wasn't having any no, more nosebleeds at the point at which we were... Um, taking care of her. So there wasn't anything to treat. She just needed the blood. Wow. So it was like 
you were there in the morning, came back, somebody else drove back, got the blood, and came mm -hmm. back, and it all happened in one day. It didn't all happen directly in one day, okay. but it all did happen in a matter of about 24 hours. Wow. Okay. And then, have you ever done a blood transfusion on a different animal, type of animal, before? Yeah. I've okay. done blood transfusions in a couple different types of animals, including cats and dogs. Okay. Um, and it so seems having, like it'd be a rare thing that you would need. It's not common, and I'll say it's not common for a couple different reasons. In, in cat-dog medicine... Unfortunately, a lot of times our, our restrictions are financial. So a oh, lot of yeah. people can't afford if you have a disease process that, that causes an animal to have a low red blood cell level. You know, you have an animal who's been hit by a car and, and has a lot of bleeding or something like that. Um, or you have a disease process that a transfusion might put a Band-Aid on but isn't going to fix. Mm. And so you put them through this whole rigmarole just to give them another day or two. And, and it's not fair to the animal for that big t procedure to be kind of their last hurrah. So it's, it's less common in that sense. Um, and then when you have our zoo animals, we, you know, hopefully we're doing a lot of preventative medicine and we don't run into a situation where we have a really low red blood cell level. But a lot of times when you have low red blood cell levels, a simple transfusion is not the fix. You need to fix the underlying problem. Oh. So usually just not having red blood cells is not the problem itself. For Allie, it was because she just had nosebleeds. She was bleeding from that, that previous tooth infection. And once we got that under control, that was no longer a problem. But now we had to deal with what had happened in that time. Mm. So again, it wasn't the transfusion didn't fix her disease, but it was a treatment, essentially. It's kind of like, you know, giving a pain medication or, or cutting out a tumor. You know, it's it's part of the treatment, but it's not the whole treatment. That makes sense. So you mentioned you can't just test and do all sorts of things on these animals we care for for no reason. So there's mm -hmm. not much research. There's not much that you can go off of. Will you publish something about this transfusion now? But then what can you do? You have one aardvark that donated blood and one that received it. Like how much can you even publish on that? Like yeah. Will you share that with other vets or how will yeah. you go about that? So I, I have already talked to other veterinarians who have reached out, you know, um, Cincinnati did a wonderful job of kind of sharing the story and you don't know what you don't know. Um, so as you share information, there's more information that's out there and I am hoping to publish this information in veterinary journals. And you're right, there's not a lot of information that I can share. I can't say that every aardvark who gets a transfusion isn't going to have a reaction. I can't tell you if aardvarks have blood types. I can't tell you, you know, all of these different information, but I can share what I do know, which is we had an aardvark that had this red blood cell level. We gave it this <clears throat> amount of blood. It increased it to this level. And looking back at uh, blood recheck blood over the next two weeks, three weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, the red blood cells continued to persist and they stayed there. Our animal, you know, had these kind of health parameters during our anesthesia. It had this kind of health parameter after. We didn't see a transfusion reaction despite A, B, and C. And so, you know, if I didn't have that information, before then, I didn't have this information. But now, even if I just put that information out there, another veterinarian might say, oh, I'm in a really critical strait. I don't know, do, do aardvarks have really bad reactions? And they'll see one individual, well, that one didn't have a bad reaction. Maybe I'll give this a try. Yeah. Like, if, even if it's just that much information, that's more information than we had before. It's better than nothing, yeah. It's, it's better yeah, than nothing. And, and when we're looking at these publications and when we're looking at this information, we take a critical eye. We know that if we're looking at a case report of one individual, 
well, we can't say anything more than what happened in that one individual, which doesn't mean it's not valuable information, but we, we take it with a grain of salt. You know, we're not going to say that every aardvark is going to be the same. Um, but yeah, that's how, that's how we use our, our scientific training and our medical training to kind of discern which, which information is robust and what is limited. And it's got to start somewhere, right? Maybe yeah. in 20 years, this has been done 20, 25 times. And exactly. And you have a, a substantial case report that you can look back on. But right now, it's just Allie, right? Exactly. <laughs> and just like in cats and dogs, you know, the first person who did a blood transfusion in a dog, they didn't know. And the first time it worked. And then they did more and more and they realized, oh, wait, dogs do have blood types. Dogs do have these issues. And so maybe Allie will be just the first of many. Now, we hope that aardvarks don't need transfusions yeah, every, right. <laughs> you know, frequently, but it's, it's more information than we had before. Is it? I have absolutely no idea. Scientifically, is it difficult to figure out a blood type? Like, would it be worth it to collect blood from Allie and from the donor and just see maybe they do have the same type or find out if there are different types? Or is that like impossible or not worth your time it's, because it's so rare? Or... Yeah, it, it is interesting. It would be very uh, educational, but I think in terms of the challenges come in who has the time, who has the resources, and uh, who has the interest. Okay. So, um, you know, what are we spending our time doing? Is this going to be, when I'm looking at what are the, what are the opportunities I'm going to pursue? It's how much of an impact is this going to make in the time it takes me to figure this out? Right. And mm -hmm. so, you know, how many times has an aardvark needed a blood transfusion? I don't know. This is, you know, I have not read other publications on it, but it doesn't mean that it hasn't happened before. Chances are it probably did happen before and somebody just didn't publish on it. And now we're just going to share that information. Um, but once a disease process becomes continual, one of the things that I was uh, going to reach out to other institutions about is dental disease. Dental disease is common in aardvarks. Mm -hmm. And is there information that if we pull together all of these stories, can we say, you know what, most commonly they get this kind of dental disease. If you use this kind of treatment, it's very successful. If you use this kind of treatment, it's not very successful. Um, so that is a bigger problem in our aardvarks that than just having a, a simple blood transfusion. Right. So, so it's certainly, it's a little bit of a give and take. Okay. Yeah. And it's nice to be able to build up like a, a profile for different methods, right? Mm -hmm. Because one treatment method might work for one animal and it might not work for another aardvark in the future. Exactly. Have you guys heard anything from um, the aardvark in Columbus? Like, I assume being a healthy yeah. aardvark, he's recovered fine, but yeah. have you guys she's, heard anything? She's doing well. I actually worked with her when I was in my residency. And um, like I said, there's, there's such a collaborative effort. Uh, you know, stepping into veterinary medicine, as soon as we reached out and said, hey, we have an aardvark that needs blood, it, we just had responses flooding in in Columbus, you know, yes, we can do it. We can do it this afternoon. We can get this in, we can get this for you. And they immediately reached out and their animal care staff were very invested in Allie as well. They wanted to know how she was doing. Mm. So as soon as the transfusion was done, I sent out messages to the dentist. I sent out messages to the Columbus veterinarians. I sent out messages to the animal care at Columbus to say, Hey, Allie did great. You know, this is what we achieved with this blood transfusion. And I've given them many updates over the last few weeks saying, hey, she's doing great still. You know, everything's looking good. We're making these improvements. And it's been nothing but uh, excitement when, when everyone hears. Because everyone really rallied together. And, you know, just like when you can donate your time or when, you know, we donate blood. It's, mm -hmm. it's exciting to see how that impacted another animal or another individual. 
Yeah, that's really rewarding yeah. for sure. I love that story. Awesome. I think it's so interesting. And I'm sure you have a million stories like that. And mm -hmm. I can't wait. I hope we can have you back again and tell us about yeah. any other interesting stories you feel like sharing. Is there any other part of your job that you think uh, we should talk about or you'd want to touch on or any favorite things? What's your favorite animal? I'll ask oh, that. It's always my favorite animal. Um, <laughs> yes, everything. I, I don't have a favorite. Like okay. I said, I get, I get very invested when their caretakers get very excited. Um, but in general, the more likely it is to kill me. I love it, um, whether that's a venomous snake or a tiger or an elephant, you know, like just the, just kind of the, the respect that you garner from, from something that is, uh, so, so, so we're, we're such squishy beings. <laughs> we have, we have so many vulnerabilities. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a lot of respect. I, I love the cats. I love anything with antlers and hooves. I love, I love it all. We have People don't like to answer that question. I, that's a, what's your favorite, what's your well, that's, favorite that's a very great, deliberate answer, though. I love yeah. everything, right? <laughs> Do you have time to have animals of your own? Do you have pets at I home? have, yeah. So I would love to have my own menagerie. <laughs> um, I, I spend a lot of time working, so I try to be respectful of my, my animal's time. So currently, I just have one cat. Okay. She prefers to be a, an only child. Um, so I, I have her because she is fine being on her own while I'm here long hours, you know, doing veterinary care. And as I mentioned, I've, I've done a lot of schooling and so I've moved quite frequently as part of a lot of that schooling and she is a very good travel companion. Oh, so good. she's, she's done well with that. It's a perfect match for you then. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you That's so awesome. much. I think if, unless there's something else you want to talk about, yeah. we will go ahead to trivia. Yeah, yeah. Love for it, it. For sure. Okay. I do have trivia. Obviously, we're talking about transfusions, a lot of mm. blood work today. So I've oh got boy. it's blood trivia for you guys. Oh no. This was something. Is it I gonna found be bad if I don't know it? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> His this questions is, are ridiculous. This is something I found fascinating as I was looking it up. This is all about uh, animal blood coloration. Mm. So mm -hmm. I'm gonna give you guys the animal and yeah. you guys have to guess what color the animal's blood is. I didn't yeah. realize it could be more than blue yeah. or red. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't either until I looked it up. So that's this is gonna be fun. But mm -hmm. um this is after the blood is oxygenated. So like obviously when yeah. our blood is blue under the skin, right? But when mm -hmm. we bleed it comes out red. So what color does their blood come out, if that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for I made that more complicated. Yeah, no, 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 that was helpful. So cool. Okay. All right. So first question, first animal we have up is the horseshoe crab. Oh, I've actually drawn blood on a horseshoe crab, no so way. I know this answer. So Dr. <laughs> Jess knows it. All right. Wait, I have questions. Are crabs... No, I'm not going to embarrass myself. Don't embarrass... There are no stupid questions. They're not like a giant insect, are they? Like are they're they... an invertebrate, right? So, so they're not quite the same as an insect, but you, they come kind of under the crustacean esque. Okay, I know. would have said crustacean. That's where I'm embarrassing myself. And they have blood. Oh, de debatable. Okay. So that's the other thing is oh, I, man. I won't get very technical, okay. but. Okay. There's no, a difference as technical. to what you call blood versus they have something more similar to hemolymph. So this is, they don't have the same, you know, red blood cells this, the way we do, but they do have a fluid that passes through their body that serves a very similar function. Okay. Because and we call that insects don't actually have blood, but yeah. you can call So they okay. have hemolymph, okay. which is what we call the same fluid that has components that 
carry around nutrients and oxygen and okay. things like that. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for explaining that. Mm -hmm. And where do you draw blood from a horseshoe crab? Yeah, so they so they have a connection between the top of their shell and kind of like the bottom half of their body slash tail. The plate like pivots, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right yeah. where the plate pivots. And there's a little bit of a soft spot that if you go right into that soft spot, um, I don't know if you're, are you going to talk more about her, uh, horseshoe crabs and how they're used for science? A little bit, but you okay. probably know more than I do. So well, please speak on it. I'm not as, I don't remember it at the top of my memory cause I've, I've looked into it, but I haven't, I haven't looked into it recently. Um, but so you can collect blood there and that is, it's kind of the heart slash it's the sack right next to the heart. So oh. it's kind of a, a central filling station for this hemolymph. And that's, okay. that's where you draw blood. Um, but it's also used, it's very important for uh, medical purposes. Yes, I swear mm -hmm. I've watched a show. Or, like, I mm -hmm. don't really have memories, but I have a small memory of <laughs> a faint memory, I should say. Yeah. What can it What can it help with? Well, have we gotten to the color yet? No, because I keep asking questions because it's fascinating. <laughs> I'll let Dr. I won't, I won't talk steal, about this as long as she wants. No, please talk about this as long as you want. But okay, you know what I'm going to guess because okay. I've, I'm sure I've heard it, but I don't know. So I'm guessing green. Okay, I, it's actually a beautiful light blue. No it's way. Blue. Yeah, yeah. I have a picture of it. I'll show you. Okay, later. cool. <laughs> Do you remember what it is helping with medically? So I believe what they harvest it for is it's very important for detecting certain kinds of bacterial contamination oh. in medical um, sterilization. So they actually collect blood from the horseshoe crabs and use it in this process. And I don't remember exactly what it is about the blood that makes that they can't kind of recreate synthetically. Um, but it's there's a big push now because there's there's enough use of this and it's important enough to the medical community that they need to be careful that they're not over harvesting yeah. because mm -hmm. this is not a lethal process. You can collect blood without killing the animal. However, you want to make sure that you're doing it sustainably and you're doing it within uh, a good welfare practices. Yeah. And so I do know that there's new legislation and um, kind of a, a push to make sure that what was done kind of without thought is now being done with more thought. Good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I also read it's it's starting to be used for uh, researching with cancer treatment as well mm. because it's so rich in copper. Yeah. So their blood is very rich in copper instead of iron. Oh. So they're starting to, I think that's all just yeah. uh, just kind of experimentation mm -hmm. stage. It's not actually being used, yeah. but um, just But yeah, it has to do potential. with what they use to carry the oxygen because it's the iron that binds in the blood that is actually what's able. That's why you have hemoglobin. The, those hemes are what actually chemically bind to your oxygen in from your lungs and then takes it to a different organ it releases it to that organ so you have oxygen and then it comes right back up and travels <laughs> back up um see the educating i love it no yes <laughs> i, I, love, I it. love it especially love when it. it's explained in a way that i can understand <laughs> <laughs> yeah all right number two i can't tell you the species name okay. because the species name gives it away but it is a species of skink Oh. What color is this blue. species of skink? Blue for Jenna. Dr. Jess, do you have I a guess? Know. This the is the color skink. of its blood. Yes. yes. Mm, I don't think I know this one. I am going to guess. Now I'm going to guess green. Okay. Green. It is green, actually. No! It is green. <laughs> There's a green tongue skink? It's, it's called the green-blooded skink. Oh, yeah, Jenna's so guessing off the blue tongue skink. <laughs> Very cool animals. We have a couple of the zoo. But it is the green-blooded skink. 
Um, apparently, his blood is green because Dr. Jess, if I'm, I'm yep. sure I'm mispronouncing it, help me out here. Billy it Virgin? contains a Billy Verin. Yeah. It. it can has a very high concentration of Billy Verin in its blood. But only that specific type of skink? No. Not. So you want to know something else interesting about blood? Yes. <laughs> yes. So you know how when we bruise, we have a bruise that uh, it kind of turns black, then kind of purple, then kind of a greenish yellow, and then it goes away. Yeah. So we have bilirubin in our blood, and rubin is similar to red. So that is the, when our blood breaks down, it breaks down into kind of a red color, but it also breaks down into biliverdin, which is more of a greenish color. Now, reptiles and birds have primarily biliverdin as part of their oh. verd, just like, you know, uh, the Latin origin of the color green. Um, and so when they bruise, it immediately turns uh, green-yellow because when their blood breaks down, it turns into that more Billy Verdon color. So they just have a higher concentration. If, they were, high an concentration. Ant, if they were a human, it would just be like super red. Oh, but, okay. So it's something they normally have. It's just apparently at a much higher concentration. Yeah. I'm really embarrassed about my answer. Why are you, <laughs> yeah, you should about be so embarrassed. A blue tongue blood. skink is totally That you don't know these obscure animal facts. How dare you tell <laughs> I just got stuck on the blue tongue part. Alright, number three here. What color is an elephant's blood? I would have guessed red. I or think it's red, red as well. It's red. I had to throw one curveball. I had to throw one curveball. Oh, goodness. We just drew blood on the elephant recently. I'm like, I'm pretty sure it was red. I had to throw one curveball at you. You guys both got it. It's red. Alright, number four. What color blood is a sea cucumber's? Ooh. Ooh, this is not something I know the answer to. Sea cucumber. Um, I'm gonna go fun. Let's say purple. Purple, okay. Mm -hmm. Jenna, you have a guess. Well, I'm now. I'm trying to think like glitter, um, sparkly. <laughs> I'm going to guess yellow. Ooh, nice. It is yellow. Nice! Yes, it. yes, it's yellow. What a guess. So there's uh, something called vanadium in mm. seawater, and this vanadium concentrates within the sea cucumber in proteins, and huh. the proteins turn the blood yellow. Nice! Wow. I learned something new today. There we go. It's the first thing I've taught her all day. I'm glad, I've learned a lot from Dr. Jess, so I'm glad there's one thing she's learned from me today. All right, last one here. You guys have been impressive so far. Um, it is an Antarctic ice fish called a crocodile fish. Hmm. Antarctic ice fish. It's probably going to have something to do with keeping its blood from clotting while freezing. So what does that? <laughs> I'm gonna go with purple again. Purple, okay. I'm guessing blue. Blue. This is actually semi trick question. It's colorless. Oh, that was gonna be my it next is just guess. Clear. <laughs> it is just clear. So the Antarctic ice fish has no red blood cells or pigmentation in its blood. Mm. Oxygen is apparently not carried through the blood, it is just transported through blood plasma. Oh, yeah. yeah. So. You want to know something else interesting? Please, yes, please. So when we think about how we oxygenate all of our uh, organs, you know, oxygen is much like any other gradient. You know, when we breathe in, we have much more oxygen in our lungs, and that oxygen can diffuse into the kind of the fluid surrounding our red blood cells or our plasma. So we do get some oxygen just by the fact that 
that fluid can kind of hold extra molecules, but it's the red blood cells that will actually grab extra molecules. So that's why you need the red blood cells. We rely on kind of a higher concentration, but it sounds like this fish doesn't need that higher extra transportation. They just work on whatever oh. is diffused kind of naturally into the yeah. into the plasma. That's fascinating. Yeah, just colorless blood for the Antarctic ice huh. fish. I don't know. Are they transparent in addition to that? No, I've seen photos. Okay. They're not. Okay. They're, they're kind of like a grayish, blackish mm. tone, mm. but not transparent. Interesting. Because yeah. there are transparent cave fish, but I didn't know if that mm. was. Oh, yeah, I know what yeah, you're Yeah, I've seen those. They yeah. have those at the aquarium. Yeah. Oh, I've nice. Seen those before. I liked well, that trivia. Today. That was cool. Yeah. That was Thanks fun. for being a good sport. The yeah. last yeah. trivia was a little rough. It was about plants <laughs> and, and history. If he asks me, like, what time in history, it's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. This was incredible. I loved hearing about Ali, and I love that you have information to, like, give us and educate us throughout <laughs> yes, all of the trivia. That's it. amazing. Um, but as we end every episode, mm -hmm. what can I do? Is there anything you've done? Is there something that you do that you could recommend to people if they want to make a little small step to be a better steward of the earth? Yeah, I, I think, you know, there are lots of things. The one thing I will say is anything that you do makes a difference, even if it's the tiniest yes. little thing. You know, if we all make that one little difference, it, it has a much more magnified impact. Um, so when I was working at the university, one of the things that I would do is I use public transportation as much as I could. So my, my commute into the university was a little bit challenging. So what I did was I drove about halfway and then I used a park and ride. And for, as part of that park and ride, we were able to all get on a big bus so that we had a lot less traffic that actually went into the center of the, the city. And it cut down about half of the driving that I could do. And even though ultimately I used a vehicle to get from my house to the university, at least for the second half of it, that vehicle carried about 40 people. So yeah. you just knew that's, you know, that many more cars that were off the road that, um, you know, weren't putting a little extra pollution into the world. I really like that. We yeah. haven't talked about anything like that so far. And it can be difficult depending on where you live yeah. to find those options that get you mm -hmm. where you need to go. But yeah, we haven't talked about that, and I think it's something that you may not know exists. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if that yeah. exists in Cincinnati, to be honest, because I've never looked into it. So yeah. I think that's great. And, yeah, just like you said, the smallest things that may not seem like you're making a huge difference actually can, mm -hmm. especially if there's a bunch of people doing it. Yeah, yeah for definitely. sure. Definitely. Any kind of commitment to public transit that you mm -hmm. can take, right, is a big step, for sure. I yeah. love it. That's yeah. awesome. And as you support public transit, you know, the city sees that it's used, and then they invest more into it, and so it's kind of a... Kind of a feedback loop, too. That's a good point, yes. Great. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here again. Thank you for I know you're busy, me. and we loved your stories and hearing yeah. all about it. And hopefully, you'll come back and talk to us again. I would love to. Okay, That'd be great. Yeah, definitely. Shout out to you and the vet team. Shout out to Night yeah. Hunter staff taking yeah. care of Allie. Shout out to Columbus, their vets and their for keepers sure. and their yeah. aardvarks. Yeah. Well, and shout out to you guys too. Your your animal care here, and I couldn't do what I do without you know your guys' watchful eyes and taking care of them. The other you know, 364 days a year. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate you guys. Awesome. So thank you. Yeah, of course. Definitely. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for everyone for tuning in for another episode of Cincinnati Zoo Tales. Until next time. Have a great day.